we have a massive crisis, as many of you know, in the dollar, the American economy, and it's just on the news all the time. If you watch your television news, the dollar keeps going down, the euro keeps going up, the other currencies keep going up. We're heading into massive inflation and stagflation, and the future looks very bleak in that way. The pride of our power is being broken in a lot of different ways. We have the Muslim crisis all around the world. They're, of course, burning our flags and cursing our president and one thing and the other with increasing fury. And right now we have some warships headed toward the eastern Mediterranean because of part of a Muslim crisis right there. More ships. We already have quite a number there. And that may, they may be there because of the crisis in Lebanon, but they may also be there, frankly, for an unannounced reason. And that is that President Bush knows he just has a window of opportunity within the next eight or nine months to stop Iran from building their atomic bomb. And they are building it. They keep right on increasing their uranium. And the European Union has even admitted that, that they will do nothing. They sit on their hands and they're waiting for us. So we may quietly let the Israelis go in there and then have a number of ships waiting by to back them up in case there's a counterattack. And other things are about to happen. We've now entered the Ides of March, as the ancients called it, the time when the nations go to war. It's called the Ides of March. And these things are going to start speeding up perhaps even this spring. So we have to watch. We have the illegal immigration crisis. We love our Spanish brethren. I love them very, very much, the ones that I've known that are in God's church. But we have a lot of people here who are breaking God's, not God's law, they're breaking God's law because they're breaking man's law. And God tells us to be submissive and obedient to the powers that be. And as you know, we now have 12 to 20 million illegal aliens in this country. And that's going to begin to weaken us as well. We have a whole book I've been reading. I've finished several books along the lines of this and the crisis of the Muslim crisis and so on. This is Pat Buchanan, who ran for president a few years ago, and it's called The Day of Reckoning. It's very powerful, and I don't begin to have the time and perhaps shouldn't read any, but sometimes it's helpful to get something beside just the Bible or what we're saying to back up what we're saying. He says, what formed us into one nation and people? For generations, we worked side by side. Our fathers fought together in the Civil War, Spanish-American War, and the World Wars. We went through the Depression together. Though separated by race, in the 1950s there was, as I wrote in State of Emergency, a definable American nationality. In 1960, 18 million black Americans, 10% of the nation, were not fully integrated into our society, but they had been assimilated into our culture. They worshipped the same God, spoke the same language, had endured the same depression and war, watched the same television shows, and so on. They were American. But now we have millions of illegals coming in, as he goes on to explain, who do not assimilate. They do not learn our language. They do not adapt our culture. And they're having great big rallies all over San Antonio, El Paso, San Diego, Los Angeles, and throughout the Southwest in various parks and even public plazas with the police standing by doing nothing. And they say, this land is ours and we're going to take it back. It's called the Reconquista, the Reconquering. A lot of you know that. It's been mentioned a number of times. They have declared they are going to take back that land, and we do nothing about it. And so this is spreading. He says that cultural unity we used to have is gone. 
Truly, America faces an existential crisis. Are the racial, political, social, and cultural forces pulling us apart, overwhelming the forces holding us together? It is the belief of the author and the premise of this book that, yeah, America is indeed coming apart, decomposing, and that the likelihood of her survival as one nation through mid-century is improbable and impossible if America continues on her present course. He goes on to show that we are, in effect, committing national suicide. The Anglo-American peoples here, the Anglos are not reproducing. Others are reproducing far more, and they're becoming the majority, and the ones who founded the nation are becoming the minority increasingly. Beside that, he says, perhaps the greatest threat to the survival of this nation as a sovereign, independent republic comes from transnational elites, these smart guys, the intelligentsia, who seek to erase our borders and merge America, Mexico, and Canada into a North American Union, the penultimate step toward a world federation of nations and peoples. The end. Now, brethren, very intelligent people like former President Bush, George Shultz, former Secretary of State, respected man, certainly, Margaret Thatcher, former Prime, uh, former Prime Minister of Britain, and so on, all believe and are working hard toward a world government. I don't condemn them because they're blind. They know the only solution to man's problem is to have a world government. Otherwise, we're going to blow ourselves up. They can figure that out. But they're trying to bring it about by human means. And right today, as we sit here, there are meetings going on. Plots are being made to make us one nation with Mexico and with Canada which will vastly lower the standard of living of the United States of America. We will not be the United States of America anymore. And all this is being put together. And then their ultimate plan, which they've enunciated, it's in writing, is to make us join up with the European Union and make us all one big glob of people. Of course, God is going to do that in a different way. But that's happening underneath the scenes. So I think you need to realize a lot of stuff is going on, not by nincompoops, but George Shultz, actually, former Secretary of State, has been on a top committee to help put this together. And these things are documented in this book and many other books that I've read by very respectable authors. The weather crisis is growing worse. If we don't get rain, as you know, our my grass and your grass is going to be ruined in a few months from now. They won't let us water. It's not something way off. It's hitting right here, right now. And God Almighty is going to keep bringing it about until He gets our attention and brings even the people in this Bible Belt to their knees. Because there is a real God and people have got to wake up and understand that fact. And God's going to use us if we keep on our present course. And God grant that we can and do it even better, of course. We're far from perfect but to have an impact on this nation so people can understand that there is a real God and that He has true servants. And they'll have to wake up and listen. Russia's belligerency and Putin's power, of course. Putin has become a dictator. He's turning over the country to his hand-picked successor, Medvedev, and he's going to continue to dominate, no doubt, behind the scenes. And now they have massive supplies of oil and are now becoming one of the richest nations of the world, and they're rebuilding their military. They're sending their bombers right over Britain now in a threatening manner, 
and saying, what are you going to do about it? You're showing a show of force, as you know, if you've been watching the television on that and so on. China's power is growing. They have $1.4 trillion in reserves, far more financial power in that sense than any nation since the beginning of time, so far as we know. And, of course, they are going to constantly threaten to take back Taiwan. They're building their military, their air, air force, their navy, everything with increasing ferocity, frankly. And every now and then they let us know they're going to, they're going to keep on. We try to send our military people to say, well, you don't need more than this for defense. They don't care. They're going to keep right on, and we're not going to stop them. So they're going to be used by God to help humble us. Soon, and many articles have come out how the bird flu is gradually making inroads here and there where it wasn't before, and lots of other disease epidemics are just lying dormant but getting closer. Soon, my brethren, we will have disease epidemics here. We will have, and the earthquakes won't just be hitting a little earthquake over in Britain. They'll be hitting here with great fury. God says so. We have to believe it. Wow. We should be scared to death, right? All of us, so we can't sleep tonight. No, we should not. But we need to understand the age we're living in. And you young people ought to have great hope in one sense. Because this thing may not happen, of course, in five or ten years. It might be 15 or 20. You should be living your life, getting married, building your life. But on the other hand, recognize, if you see, as you will see, these things happening, that you have a real God, if you obey that God, and He will take care of you, you young people. He will take care of your new wife or your new husband, your children. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And we're going into time when I think even the young people will say, Thy kingdom come, even though they would like to get married and live a normal life for 20 years. When these things start collapsing all around, even they will say, Thy kingdom come, and really mean it, because we have a real God. Should we be scared to death, or should we be uh, building an understanding and faith for the real future? The answer, of course, is obvious. Today, I want to help us grow in faith. That's my topic. I want to help us grow in faith because we're going to have to grow in faith with these understandings of what we're about to face. For you and I will really need faith and courage in the months and years just ahead. What would Jesus have us do? He gives us the answer in Luke. If you want to turn there with me now to Luke chapter 21. As you know, he repeats the Olivet Prophecy about wars, famines, pestilence, disease epidemics, and great earthquakes are going to happen before his second coming. Powerful things. And God's people will be persecuted, he says. And then he says in verse 25, and there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars, and on the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, massive hurricanes, tsunamis, just like we've experienced in recent years. Men's hearts failing them for fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth for the powers of the heaven will be shaken. But are we to be shaken? Are our hearts ready to fail for fear? They should not be. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with glory and with power and great glory. And we can thank God for that. That is going to come next. Now, when these things begin to happen, and I submit to you, after 58 and a half years in the church of God, that these things are beginning to happen. 
they are beginning to happen. The big events have not yet happened, but all kinds of smaller and medium-sized events, such as the reunification of Europe, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the rise of Germany, the beginnings of the United States of Europe, the taking away of our great sea gates, the pride of our power in America being broken, such as never before. All these things and more are certainly beginning to happen. When these things begin to happen, should you be terrified if you're really converted, if you know God, walk with God, have faith in God? No, he said, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. In your heart you say, thank God it's about over. And thank God the real life is about to begin. And the family of God, the kingdom of God to interact with Jesus and with Peter and James and John and Paul and Barnabas and Abraham and Isaac and Israel and Moses and the vibrant personalities such as King David and many others that we've read about will be there with them as part of the same family. And we'll get to know them and talk to them and plan with them what we may be doing soon out on Alpha Centauri and out on Pluto and around the universe. We'll be part of the divine family, the creator family. And that needs to become more real to us. I know sometimes we preach about it, well, that seems like long ago and far away or way out in the space somewhere like it's unreal. But as these things start to happen, the God we serve is going to become more real if you study the Bible and believe what God says. Look up because your redemption draws near. And he spoke to them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. And when they're already budding, you see that and know for yourselves that summer is near. So likewise, when you see... And we are beginning to see these things happening. Know that the kingdom of God is near. No, the kingdom of God is not a warm feeling set up in your heart. <laughs> Jesus said here, when you see these massive world events happen, then you know the kingdom of God is near because the kingdom of God is a world-ruling government under Jesus Christ. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things are fulfilled. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with what? We must not do this, brethren, and yet some of us in the church do. And again, I'm not preaching just to you. I am preaching to you in this room, but this is being recorded. You brethren around the world, listen carefully. A lot of people in God's church back in worldwide days were carousing. They were drinking too much. Some were slyly smoking. Some were taking drugs. Some were cussing, even beating their wives, stealing God's tithe, watering everything down. As you can imagine, that's what they were doing. Take heed, lest your hearts be weighed with carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of this life. Just getting involved in your day-by-day lives in God's kingdom, saying, way off. And that day come on you unexpectedly, because you're not watching, you're not waiting, you're not looking, you're not excited about it. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch, therefore, and pray always. You are to watch world events. And frankly, it should be exciting. It is to me, after 58 years of watching and hearing Mr. Armstrong say, this is going to happen and then that's going to happen. When I was in Ambassador College in 1949 and 50 through 52, he said... A United States of Europe is going to be formed. Germany is going to come back. They will be the leading nation. He said the sea gates that we've been given, and he named some of them, will be taken away unless we repent. And now what's been done? 
All but two of the major ten sea gates are gone. The Strait of Hormuz is mentioned quite often if you watch the news, because that's where 70% of the Middle East oil passes. Very important sea gate. Used to be controlled by Great Britain. It's gone. The Suez Canal, equally and more important in a way. It's gone. The Bab el-Mandeb on the south entrance to the Red Sea, it's gone. The Simonson's base controlling the way around South Africa, it's gone. The Panama Canal is gone, and so on, around the world. Only two major sea gates remain. Falkland Islands controlling the tip around South America, and Gibraltar controlling the western end to the Mediterranean. And both of them are under threat right now, as I've explained. And one or both of them may be gone in the next few years. I'm not saying they will, but I think probably at least one of them will, and frankly, probably both. So you pray always. Watch these events. And pray, brethren, not just once a day. Learn to walk in prayer all through the day. Pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. So God tells us to be very alert to these things, to watch these things, and frankly to be excited about them. Turn with me now, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 10. I'm turning to Hebrews chapter 10. And let's begin in verse 35. Hebrews 10 and verse 35. God tells us here, Therefore do not cast away your confidence. Confidence is one aspect of faith. You have a quiet realization. There is a real God. You have a quiet realization. He is there. Does He let bad things happen? Yes. Sometimes bad things do happen to good people. We see that. We know that. But his big purpose stands. And sometimes we don't know why perhaps God let Mr. Carl McNair die or why he let Mr. John O'Gwen die. I didn't know why he let Mr. Dick Armstrong die back in way back in 1958 at the age of 29. Mr. Carl McNair was 66 and two-thirds years old. I just got a packet. My wife, my daughter tried to give me the thing and had already been sent one by Peggy McNair Batterton, my wife Margie's older sister, the McNair genealogy and history of the McNair family. And she was pointing out how her father, I think, died at age 66. Her mother died at age 65. So Mr. Carl McNair died precisely the age both his parents did. And I've said long before that happened, that doesn't make it any easier for Rod, I know, who's sitting here. But about, most of us live about 70 years. We don't all live to be exactly 70 years and then fall over. Most men, men die a little younger than women because they're more reckless and they're eating and they're drinking and they're smoking and they're all the way they live and fight and carry on. So they'll die a little younger on average. Most men die between age 60 and 80. That's normal. That's not abnormal. That doesn't make it any easier. But God has allowed some to die. God allowed Dick Armstrong to die at age 29. And that shook me to the depths of our being, of my being, because he was one of my best friends. And I spent thousands of hours with him. And I'm not exaggerating or braggy. We were just a small college and I got well acquainted and that's the way it was. But I hated that. 
And yet I came to realize God allowed it. And later on, I came to realize probably why God allowed it. I wanted to explain he wasn't committing some great sin. God gave him three great healings just before he died to kind of show Dick's okay. Dick's okay, but I'm letting him go to sleep. He prayed personally over Pentecost weekend for a man, of course, Mr. Apartian will remember all these things, and Mrs. Apartian, for a man we knew as Howard Clark, who was a paraplegic or quadriplegic, actually, from the, from the Korean War. And they'd bring him in, and there he'd sit. Year after year, he wasn't putting on. He'd been through naval hospital after naval hospital. Finally, his nurse married him <laughs> because he had a magnificent personality. She loved him, and so on. But there he was, cri crippled, could hardly shave or do anything. And over Pentecost, 1958, I was up in Chicago or New York or somewhere for Pentecost, and a young man came out to the airport to meet me when I came back. He said, oh, Mr. Meredith, he said, did you know that Howard Clark was healed? And I didn't, you know, I knew God could heal, but somehow that even surprised me. I didn't know he'd been anointed. Well, Dick Armstrong had a, he anointed him, and he was healed. And the very next day, I was over at the college. I think I've told you this before, but walking around this where the circular drive is, and Howard was sitting on the big fender of the old-fashioned car there, the big heavy car where you could sit on the fenders and kind of smiling. And I said, Howard, I hear, I hear you're healed. He, he, he knew me. In fact, I'd baptized him. Had to have two other men help to get him in and out of the water because he was so heavy and completely inert. But at any rate, uh, he kind of twinkled. I said, you can walk. He says, you want to see me, don't you? And I said, yes, I do. <laughs> so he got up and he kind of left around and brought tears to my eyes. And he kept getting better and better. That later, Dick had two other unusual healings. I better not take all the sermon to tell about them. But then right after that, God let Dick die. And God had a purpose. He lets things happen occasionally in a way we don't always understand until later. But he's there. He is there. He is our God. He is our Father. So we have to always understand that, brethren. So he tells you back here, don't cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. You've got to do the will of God, though. Then you'll receive the promise. For yet a little while, and it's very little from God's point of view, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. And brethren, I'll tell you, as we're entering a time of the most horrible events in human history, we will need faith and courage as never before. The just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe. We have faith to the saving of the soul. So anyway, we need to have that attitude, brethren. We really do. And we've got to learn not just to keep on, but we've got to live by faith as a way of life. And we need to live by faith in every phase of our lives. We need to live by faith in the way we treat our husband and the way we treat our wife and the way we treat and deal with our children and the way we do on our job and the way we do with our neighbors and the way we do in our relationship with God in every way, and the way we keep His Sabbath day. Do we water it down? Do we watch all kinds of wild stuff on Friday night on television or other things? You need to think about this as you go along. And the way we keep His holy days, and the way we tithe, 
and give generous offerings. God is generous with us. If we want Him to be generous with us, are we going to be generous with Him? Or are we going to be tight with Him so He can be tight with us? We have to think about it. We must live by faith. We need to trust God for healing. We need to trust that God will guide His church as He tells you throughout the Bible that He will. If you see the fruit where Christ is working and doing His work, have faith in that leadership, not in me as such. Have faith in Mr. Armstrong as I did while he was alive. And if God takes my life or allows me to go to sleep, which would be great, no human tragedy except for my wife and family because he's already given me 77 and a half years of marvelous life. I'm grateful for that. So I can't die young, guys. <laughs> There's no way I could die young anymore. So don't be shocked if I should go to sleep. But if the next guy takes over, I better not name. I don't know who it'll be. I have three or four in mind, but God knows. Have faith that God will guide him if he keeps on preaching the full truth and doing the work. Have faith that Christ is the head of the work, the church that is doing his work and preaching the full truth and having and practicing his government. Have faith in those three big things in Christ because the fruits are there. Because the fruits are there. Have faith in Christ as the living head of the church. That's an important thing as part of faith. It really is. Then if the church says you can go and do what you need to do, if you do too much and just all kinds of things, every time you get a cold, you should not run to the doctor, frankly. But the church says there are times to go to the doctor. There are times to get medical help. Then you can do that in faith, looking to God to go above and beyond that, which he can and will in the case of many people and has done, and heal people, if you follow me. So have faith that God will guide the church in those overall ways and give us wisdom, because most of us leaders in the church today didn't come in last week or last year. As I said, I've been in the church for 58 and a half years. Mr. Parted probably for 53 years. And Mr. Ames and Dr. Winnale and others have been in the church maybe 35 or 40 years, decades of trying and testing which God has used them and put them through to teach them lessons that help them grow and other leading men like that who have been tried and tested. So have faith in what Christ can do as the living head of his church and live by that faith. In Hebrews 11, notice as we go on, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence. Faith is evidence for a spiritual person, for things not seen You don't need faith if something has already happened. If you're already healed, you don't need faith you might be healed. You have faith that God will heal you. You have faith that God will bless you if you pay your tithe to God faithfully. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand the worlds were framed by the word of God. We believe in a real God. We don't believe in a creation without a creator so that the things which are seen are not made of things visible. They're made by the invisible power of God's Spirit. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. He trusted that the God who said to offer an animal instead of vegetables knew what he was talking about. He was willing to worship God in the way that God said. Mr. Pyle pointed that out, I think, in the sermonette. We're to worship God in the way that God says to do, not our human imagination. Verse 5, by faith Enoch was translated, so he did not see death, but he was taken out of danger. They were looking for him, I imagine, when you read the story. 
that he was a preacher of righteousness and they didn't like it. Verse 6, but without faith, it is impossible to please God. You can't please God unless you have faith. That's so important. A lot of you brethren here and around the world have seen hurts and tragedies that we've had in various of our parts of ministry and other situations in Australia or over in the European continent and Britain and down in various parts of the United States and Canada. Leading men have left. Certain things have gone wrong. But you have to back off and see the big picture. Where is God continuing to work? Who is preaching the full truth more fully than anywhere else on the earth? Who is doing the work, reaching out to the whole world, not railing on people, as some do, calling themselves a prophet or apostle and saying everybody else is going to hell, but who's preaching the truth to the world over television, radio, the printing press, the Internet, powerfully, positively, see our programs. We're not implying everybody else is bad. We never do that on our television program. Who's doing that work? Who's carrying on? And practicing the government of God, trying to understand how to carry on that government without voting and politicking and this political posturing and what do your people go along with and what do your people go along with and that kind of stuff that gets into, into politics. We don't do that. And so you have faith based on these facts, you see, and the basic things that are there. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. The great God exists and that he is a rewarder of whom? This is so important, brethren, of those who diligently seek him, not half-heartedly seek him, not lukewarmly seeking him, but those who go all out and have a passion for God. My King, my God, my Rock, my Savior, David cried out. He passionately worshiped God. That's one reason he was a man after God's own heart. God appreciated that in spite of his human faults. He had that passion for God. He had a love affair with the one who became Jesus Christ, the God of Israel, the rock of Israel, the word, the logos, who became Jesus of Nazareth. And God never forgot that. And so David will be the king over all 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles will be under him and will be under them. And we don't need to be jealous. We can be grateful. We didn't have to go through all of that. I didn't have to run 10 years from Saul, hiding out in caves, wondering from day to day if I was going to die. King David did. He went through all kinds of things we don't have to go through. My New Testament hero mainly used to be the Apostle Paul. And I like to compare myself with him in a certain way. I used to wish I could be like the Apostle Paul. And I thought at first I wouldn't get married. And I told some they kidded me later. But I thought, well, I'll be like the Apostle Paul. And then later I thought and came to realize we're going on a long time and women were asking me questions about child rearing and women's problems and I didn't know how to answer. So I thought it's better if I get married. We're in a different era. But I don't, I don't have a reward coming to me like the Apostle Paul, undoubtedly. I've never had to go through the things Paul went through. I think I'd be willing to. God knows my heart, but I've certainly not had to. And I haven't had to prove that to God one way or the other being beaten up over and over, lashed, times innumerable with whips by the Gentiles, beyond 40 lashes, five times by the Jews, smash across his back with the blood running down, night after night in jail, about five years of his life in prison, counting his political imprisonment at Rome, 
on the different, well, first in Caesarea for two years, then another two years at Rome, and then other imprisonments. Five years in jail, floating a night in the day, in, a day in the deep out there, hanging on to a log or something, perhaps looking up during the night and say, well, God, you're up there beyond the stars and I'm down here, and when are you going to save me? He must have known God would, but he might have had doubts at times. God did save him. He did not let him drown out there as he was floating all night long by himself out in the sea. God's apostle didn't look very apostolic out there. Didn't feel very apostolic out there floating around hanging on to a log. He didn't feel very apostolic as they dragged him out of Lystra and started cursing him and threw rocks at his head. And as he felt the rocks hitting his head and fainted in a coma where they thought he was dead, he was as dead as you read about it back in Acts chapter 14. He was just inert in a coma or was dead. We're not sure. And he got up the next day and went right back through the city saying that through much tribulation we must enter the kingdom of God. And as the people looked at the swelling all over his head from those rocks, they said, yeah, this guy knows what tribulation is all about. He had faith in God. And so we've got to understand that. We've got to build that kind of faith, brethren. He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him, not half-heartedly seek God. Turn to Malachi chapter 3 now, if you would. And I begin to get something here that we should do in connection with faith. And I hope we can all understand that in the right way. Back in Malachi chapter 3 in verse 6, God says, I am the ever-living one. I do not change. This, of course, was Jesus Christ speaking for God the Father. He and the Father are one. God does not change His basic approach to these things. He says that very clearly. Therefore, you're not consumed, O sons of Jacob, because He's always been the merciful God. Yet from the days of your fathers, you've gone away from my ordinances, His statutes, of course. One of His statutes was tithing. And you have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Eternal. But you said, in what way shall we return? He says, God says, will a man rob God? Do any of you, and you brethren around the world hearing this, do you rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? And God answers, in tithes and offerings. You're supposed to give a tithe, the full tenth of your income, and you should give offerings, and God tells you to be generous. And some then have all these trick arguments about, well, you're just, they were just tithing on the animals, so they were just doing that. But what you forget, brethren, when you read that stuff, which they're always putting out, who is the example, the main first example? God often puts the big thing first. Abraham, the father of the faithful. Read it, Genesis 14. What did Abraham tithe on? He didn't tithe on just animals or fruits or vegetables. He simply tithed on what God gave him. He tithed on the spoil. If God gives you a great blessing, if God gives you some tremendous whatever it is, Abraham tithed on it. He said, this came from God. And he tithed on it. And that's the first example of tithing in the Bible. And is used, of course, back in the book of Hebrews. No trick arguments about that. That's what Abraham did. You have robbed me in tithes and offerings. You're cursed with a curse. For you have robbed me even this whole nation. 
Is God going to bring us down financially because we as a nation have robbed God? Yes. Yes, He is. And He is in the process of doing that right now before our eyes. If you watched the BBC television last night and how the dollar was going down and these financial traders are scared and what's going on as you read the newspapers every day, which I do. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and God's work today. And prove me now. Here's the thing, brethren. You have to prove God. Do what God said, and you will find if you love your wife, if you're good to her, if you love your husband, if you're good to him and submit to him as unto the eternal, and each of you try to take the place in life humbly and lovingly that God has said, you will find in the end it will work for good. It will work for good. But you've got to learn to do that. Prove me to the degree we teach our children and really train them. It will work for good to the degree we're good to our neighbors, to the degree we do anything God's way. It will work. God's way works. And you need to prove that. And if you do that, and to the degree you do that, and see that it works, you do what? You're building faith. You say, I do this, and then God does that. You say, well, I tithed a few years and I wasn't rich. Well, no, God doesn't play, uh, promise to make you a millionaire, even wealthy. He promises to give you your daily bread and so on. And then God will often give beyond that as he does in many cases, as we know. But anyway, he says, bring all the tithes and prove me, says the Eternal, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. Will that mean you'll all be millionaires? Some of that blessing may come in tomorrow's world. God didn't say when. He's going to make us billionaires to inherit the entire universe. But today we're certainly going to have our daily bread. And we need to believe God. And I think it's good to apply this. That's one reason I'm turning to it. Not just because of tithing, but the whole thing. God wants us to prove that His way works. If you refrain from adultery, if you love your wife... Mr. Armstrong said, in, in, in your mind, you men, present your wife to yourself as the most beautiful woman in the world and love her, cherish her, and think about her in that way. And I've tried to do that with my wife. She was always remarkably beautiful. But some of you young men, you get all mixed up in your mind. I know that. You think my wife is an old woman. Now, I know better than that. <laughs> She's 62 now. She doesn't mind me saying that, I don't think. And some, some of you think she's a 62-year-old grandmother, which she is. But to me, I picture this beautiful young woman who walked up to me in the church in Bakersfield way back in 1977. And I've never forgotten that, even that scene. And that's the way I think of her. She's still got those beautiful eyes, but there are some wrinkles, I guess. But I don't try to look at them. I look at her and look at the whole, the love, the warmth, the help, the kindness that she's shown to me for over 30 years. So to me, she's the most beautiful woman in the world. Some of you other men get mixed up. You think your wife is. <laughs> I'm kidding. That's fine, and you should. But if you follow God's ways, it works. That's what I'm trying to say. If you follow God's ways, it works. So you want to learn that, brethren. Prove God in every area. And one thing I've been preaching to myself about I'll confess that. I pray to God as I confess my sins and certain things I do that are not right. 
I tell him, and I'm not out killing and strangling grandmothers in the moonlight. I guess you can figure that out. Just things where I'm not up to where I should be. I'm asking God to help me completely burn my bridges. Burn my bridges. That is, I simply cut off, think I need to take care of myself over here and over there. And sometimes we tend to protect ourselves too much in various ways so everything's going to work out all right. We've got to throw ourselves wholly on God's mercy. And that does mean God tells us to work six days. He tells us to be careful. He tells us to, like the ant, to consider the winter that's to come and have a reasonable amount of savings if we can, but not focus on those things. Burn our bridges mentally so we put our trust in God and not let any of those things become a consuming thing in our minds. Any of those things. Love for mate, love for children, love for whatever we have physically. To think, we well, we've got to quickly look to man sometimes more than we should for healing. Sometimes we want to, of course, do what we should do. I'm not saying there each one has to decide how to do that. I'm just saying that we've got to be careful not to compromise, compromise. Satan would like to make compromisers of all of us. And once you start compromising with the truth, you see, you hurt yourself before your God and you hurt your faith. As I'll show you, you hurt your faith by these compromises. So prove to yourself that uh, God's way works. He says, after describing people that have gone against him and what's going to happen, he says then in verse 16, then those who feared the eternal, he's coming up to our time, frankly, when you read the whole context here, those who feared the eternal spoke to one another and the eternal listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the eternal. Not that you have great fear as of a monster, but we know that the awe, That great God in Him we live and move and have our being. That kind of awe of that Creator who fear the eternal and who meditate on His name, on how great God is. They shall be mine, says the eternal of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels. And I will spare them in this time to come. We're going to have drought. We're going to have famine. We're going to have disease epidemics. We're going to have the most horrifying tribulation so that all flesh would be annihilated unless Christ intervened and stopped it. As he says very clearly, there's never been a time like it, no, nor ever shall be. We read that, but, you know, it's kind of hard to picture. We don't like to think about that just before we go to bed at night, all this is going to happen. But it's going to happen. And we need God's protection. We need God's deliverance. If you do that, you see, and you're God's servant with all your being, I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. He says, on the day that I make them my jewels, you and I, brethren, and you brethren around the world, you beloved brethren out in Perth and Sydney and Manila and Cape Town and London, you are God's jewels to the extent you walk with God, each of us. He says, on the day I make them my jewels, I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked. You begin to realize who's really walking with God and who's not. And between one who serves God and one who does not serve Him. We, some of us, play church. Many thousands, tens of thousands, were playing church back in the worldwide days. 
so that Mr. Armstrong looked out over the audience in Pasadena a number of times and at the feast in Big Sandy. He says, I don't think even half of you brethren are really converted. And I don't think that made him any points necessarily. Some of the brethren might not have liked that, but he said it anyway, and he meant it. A lot of brethren realized, though, they're, like, oh, they're, they're thinking it's this guy over here and this guy over here, but sometimes it's this guy right here, if you follow me. Near the end, he said, I'm not sure that more than a tithe, a tenth of you, are really converted, truly converted and conquered by God. And that was much closer to the mark, I think, much closer to the mark that one-tenth of that 150,000 might have been really converted. And, of course, many of those are dead by now, as we know, because he said that over 22 years ago. So anyway, God tests us. He's working with us. He's fashioning and molding us. And he's watching us and seeing how much we will truly burn our bridges and put our whole trust in God and walk by faith. Turn now, if you would, brethren, to Second Peter. Turn now back to Second Peter chapter 3. And I'm going to begin reading the very last few verses that Peter wrote here. Here was the leading apostle, the one who gave the sermon on the day of Pentecost the one who healed the man at the gate called Beautiful, the one who dealt with Ananias and Sapphira and all the rest. As he ended his life, just before he was martyred, he said, therefore, after describing how many have been upset and misled by misunderstanding Paul's writings, he said, verse 17, You therefore, beloved, since you know these things beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of lawless men. The original Greek is lawless men. And of course, it is translated that way in the New International Version and others. The Greek word is anamos, or a form of it, lawless ones, lawless men that break God's... That's interesting. Right after describing how men were misled, they get Paul's writings all mixed up, then they become what? Lawless men. They twist Paul's writings as their excuse to do away with God's law. And right here at the end of his life, Peter warned us about that. And yet all of Protestantism is based on that very thing. Where Martin Luther said, man shall live, you don't know, the just shall live by faith alone. And his assistant said, Dr. Luther, word alone is not in there. He said, I don't care what I've written, I've written. And he insisted on putting it in here. Faith alone, where God tells us is faith with works. Works and faith, not just faith alone. But anyway, he said, But grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You're to grow in grace and in knowledge. To Him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Now, one reason I'm reading this, I talked about building faith one time, and one of our members got all bent out of shape because he says, well, you don't grow in faith or you don't build faith. God has to put faith in you. Of course he does. But he does it partly through what you do as well. He does it because of what you do and you grow in grace and knowledge because you yourself have your part in it. So without saying you build faith, I'll just say grow in grace and part of the grace of Christ is faith. Grace, that whole love, that whole way of life is based on faith. So you must grow in grace and you must grow in faith. And as I've said since Dick Armstrong's death, 
since the trip where I was sent away 6,000 miles to get me away from someone that was sinning, and I wasn't sinning at the time in that way. I had to have faith that God would take care of me and bring me back, which he did. Later on, I got a free trip to Hawaii because Lord Darth Vader wanted to get rid of me. And I had to trust in Christ to take care of that. And he did. He did take care of it. He always takes care of these things in the end, brethren. I've learned that in 58 and a half years. You trust in God and he will take care of it in the end. Some of you have lost loved ones. I have lost a loved one, my first wife, Margie, who died at age 40. But I've learned that God is alive and I know that I will see her again. And my present wife, Cheryl, has not ever said one even half of sentence against Margie. She respects her. She says, I know she was a very good woman. And so I think they'll be good friends in tomorrow's world. <laughs> they'll have God's spirit. They'll love each other, hug each other. And we will be spirit beings in the family of God. All right? But that hurt to have your wife die in your arms. And she was only 40 years of age, 40 years and three months. But these things do come out in the end. I've seen the work go on. I've seen God's great prophecies one right after the other happen. And I don't know the exact details of why he lets each one die before age 70 and why every individual thing and world events happen. But the big events, he said, do happen just as he said. And I've learned that that builds faith to me. I see God is there and he's doing that. The major events, huge events. And I've seen now, even though God lets some die, he, I see how he fashioned them and molded them and worked with them before they died. Mr. Carl Manair and Mr. John O'Gwen were some of the most dedicated men in the church. They were ready. Many people said about each of them, when John O'Gwen died more recently, I heard a number of people say he was ready. Maybe he's being spared things that were just awful that would have hurt him because he was a sensitive man. And maybe that's better. And as we see in the resurrection, we'll understand totally. God knows. I don't know the details of each one's mind and heart, but I saw these people were growing and growing, and God did not cut them off in a wrong way. He worked with them, guided them, fashioned and molded them, and used them. And as we grow in grace and knowledge, we come to understand that. So we need to grow in faith. Think about that. How much are you, brethren, think, or how much are you, each of you here and you brethren around the world, how much are you right now growing in faith? Are you growing in faith? Do you have more faith than you did a year ago? Do you have more faith than you did five years ago or ten years ago? You should have, brethren. You really should. As you try sincerely to learn the lessons of each situation and look beyond the immediate to God and look beyond man to God, you will grow in faith. And God wants you to grow in grace and he wants you to grow in faith, which is part of the grace and the character of Jesus Christ. Turn back to Romans, the 10th chapter, very familiar verse, but we shouldn't pass it by in this particular sermon. Romans chapter 10, verse 16. Paul wrote, but they have not all obeyed the gospel, talking about people of Israel and down through time. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. You build faith by hearing the Word of God. If you read the Word of God regularly, and drink in of it, and feed upon it, that builds faith. 
If you hear my sermon today with an open mind and open heart, hopefully that will build faith. You need to grow in faith. Turn back now to John chapter 6, this magnificent passage, one of the deepest passages in all the Bible. John 6, verse 53, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. He wasn't talking about cannibalism. You've got to literally, though, eat and drink of Christ. How do you do that? Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Are you immortal? No. But you have the presence of eternal life in you because Christ is in you. The Holy Spirit is in you. And then he explains in the second part of the verse. And I will raise him up at the last day. But you have had eternal life in you through the Spirit, even though the physical body dies or goes to sleep temporarily. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Christ will live in you if you eat and drink of Christ. And here's the key, verse 57. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. You feed on Christ. You drink into the Bible. You pray to God. You pray to Christ. You drink in consciously and ask Christ to live in you. And as he lives within you, then you have eternal life. He says in verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words, these words of the Bible, the words in this book, the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. The words in this book are like the law of gravity. God doesn't have to intervene and back them up in the sense of intervening by some supernatural way. They're living laws. He set a living law that if the way you treat your wife or treat your husband properly, the living law shows it'll work for good in the end. He has a living law, you see, in the way you treat your neighbors and you treat others and how it works out. His law is there like the law of gravity. So anyway, come to understand that these words are spirit and they are life. As you drink in of them, you have faith because you have Christ living within you. Then you turn back, brethren, if you would, to 1 John chapter 3. Turn back, if you would, now at this point to 1 John near the end of the Old Testament here, the first epistle of John, chapter 3, and beginning in verse 16. John writes, this beloved apostle of Jesus who is filled with love, verse 16. Interesting how these patterns work out. By the way, I'm just digressing here for a moment, but remember John three sixteen, God so loved the world... And 1 John 3.16 tells us this aspect of love. By this we know that we love, or by this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We ought to try to help others, give to others, serve others more, all of us. I need to do more of that. And I often think about that. I get so involved in writing this and writing that. I'm trying to lay down my life by preaching and teaching and writing. And yet when I do that, I realize every now and then it helps me to go and anoint someone personally. I was called over to anoint Mr. Skip Stevenson a few days ago. And after I was through, he probably doesn't know why I said that. But I thanked him for calling me. I realized I need to do this. It's more fun to go anoint someone if you want to say fun. It's more pleasant in a certain sense, personally inspirational, than sitting all alone with a yellow legal pad and writing, even though the writing gets out to more people, you see what I mean. 
but to personally get involved and hands-on ministry to visit people, to help people is good. I need to somehow work a way where I can do the other jobs and then do that too and get involved more. I like that. It's not that I'm against that. I used to do it all the time. Back in the worldwide days when Mr. Armstrong and Ted were had bigger jobs and I would be the one that would often meet the people who came into Pasadena. And I've met a whole bunch of interesting people beside the good people. They had all the Elijahs and Elishas and Jesus Christ who came in to talk to us. <laughs> I'm Elijah, oh, you are? And, you know, I got to meet all those characters as well. But I got to be the man in charge of the visiting program before there was very much of a visiting program. And, and then later a bigger visiting program. But talk to people more. But all of us need to be involved in helping one another personally in every way we can. So he says, we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuffed up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Brethren, we're so used to it in our world being suspicious of others that we sometimes, even in God's church, don't help others personally by giving them food or giving them clothing or giving them money, you know, because we think, well, these beggars used to come around. And I know, I, I've, I've talked about that and seen it, you know, you give some guy some money and you meet you on the street and pretty soon you see him around the corner in the liquor store. I understand that. But is it better to give too much or to give too little? Which side is better? It's better to give too much than to give too little in helping others, even if you make a mistake and you give him more. All of us should do that. I should do that more. And so we've got to give to each other, especially our own brethren aren't going to run around and buy drugs or buy liquor. There might be some rare exception, but that would be very rare. Help one another. Think about the brethren. They're out of a job or hurting and help them. So... Let's think, how does the love of God abide in us as we're helping one another, even physically? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Do it. Help each other. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before Him. You see, if we live that way of life, we're giving genuinely, not just as part of our job, but giving and helping and serving and going above and beyond, then God looks down and then He loves us. He wants to give to us. And then we see that that way works. And then what does that do? What does that do? Well, that helps us have more faith in God. We say, wow, God blesses us. He said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Back in Acts 20, verse 35. Write it down if you're not familiar. One of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. Acts chapter 20 and verse 35. Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Give and help others. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before Him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, because we are keeping His commandments, and because we're giving, we're helping, we're serving, we're going above and beyond. And we can say, Father, I've made this mistake, but I love you with all my heart and I'm trying to serve others. And he knows that. He's going to look over those mistakes. He'll love you anyway. He'll forgive you just like that. Because you've gone above and beyond in loving him and loving your neighbor and helping others. So he'll forgive you. And as he forgives you and blesses you, then you grow in faith. It all ties in with faith. And so we've got to understand that. If our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts. 
Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, if we've been growing and helping and serving with our whole hearts, not perfectly, none of us do it perfectly, I don't do it perfectly remotely, but wholeheartedly we're trying, we have confidence. What is confidence? Faith. We have confidence because we can say, God, we're trying to do our best, and Father, you know I'm trying to do my best. But brethren, if you don't know that you're trying to do your best, if you know that you've been hitting the bottle way too much, if you know that you've been slapping and cursing your wife, if you know that you've been slapping and cursing your children, if you know that you've been stealing or even stealing from God, if you know that you've been watching a whole bunch of rotten garbage on television or going out to R-rated movies or going here and there and that kind of thing, if you know that, you think, oh, well, I don't know, I feel kind of guilty. And you can't have the same faith. You see what I mean? Guilt is a great destroyer of faith. A great destroyer of faith. So that's why it's important in regard to faith even. To walk with God. To love your neighbor. To do good. So your heart does not condemn us. But if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And then, what then? Whatever we ask, we receive from Him. You see, if we have that basic love and confidence toward God. Because we keep His commandments, plural, and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. Because we're helping, we're giving, we're serving, we're letting God's Spirit flow through us and out from us like rivers of living water. And then we can have greater faith in God. We know in our hearts we're doing our best, in a sense, as we say humanly, not perfectly, but we're doing it wholeheartedly at least. And we know that God knows that. So we can ask in that faith. And that's so important. And then, of course, as we drink in of God's Spirit, we will think as He thinks, and we will feel as He feels. And we will have faith, because our mind will be the mind of God, and we will want what God wants. And if God wants us to die, some of us, before the tribulation, or right before the kingdom of God comes in the person of Christ, we should want that. We should realize that God knows best. Not that we have a death wish. I have no death wish at all. I like life. Most of you figured that out there around me. But, you know, if God wants me to go to sleep before the end, I don't say, oh, I can't go to sleep. No. Maybe God knows I'll be better off taking a nap. Monica can wake me up then with my tea at the end of it. <laughs> she does. <laughs> and give me some tea. I can wake up from my nap in the resurrection. And that will be better. Maybe God knows, Meredith, you're tired and you need to rest for a while and some younger guy will carry on. If that's better, then that's what I want. And that's what I should want. You, you see the picture? Whatever it is, even if you go to sleep sooner, if we have trials of sickness. I had a terrible trial, physical trial, when I was only 29 years of age back in 1955. I lost about 30 pounds and I didn't weigh very much in the beginning. I could show some of you a picture of me. It looked absolutely gaunt like a concentration camp victim. I had terrible uh, middle ear infection. And finally, Mr. Armstrong, I cried out in the middle of the night and had my wife call Mr. Armstrong and say, Rod is hurting, he's crawling the walls. And she prayed right in the middle of the night. And God took the pain right then. It was interesting and encouraging how quickly the pain went away. But he did it by allowing both eardrums to rupture. And Dr. Merrill, then I went to see him or he came or whatever, and he said, well, the pain's gone, but he says, later on, your, your ears thicken and you will be hard of hearing probably. Yeah, you know, that happened too. So God has allowed those things to happen 
you know, in our lives. Now, why did God let that happen to me? Well, I was getting a little bit too much for myself. I'd have been appointed second vice president, and I was teaching this and doing this and doing everything. I think I got too big for my britches. And God said, I think I'm going to teach Rod Meredith a lesson. I will humble him. Boy, was I humble. I lost 30 pounds. I cried out to God. I, I, you know, I'm just hurting and hurting and hurting for hours and days. And it was good for me. And then I began to read the Psalms. And then God says there in Psalm 119, it's good for me that I have been afflicted that I might learn your statutes. Psalm 119. And I read that Psalm and I thought, yeah, that's right. <laughs> he that exalts himself shall be abased. And he who humbles himself shall be exalted. And you have to learn those lessons sometimes the hard way. But in the end, the pain taught me some lessons that I remember to this day. So it worked for good, even though I'm hard of hearing and my wife has to holler at me occasionally. <clears throat> and uh, so on. And, uh, but at any rate, God works all things for good. Whatever we ask, you see, if we build that confidence in God by doing what God says and loving others and serving Him, we build that confidence so that then whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. God then will hear our prayers and bless us. Then we turn to Romans 14, brethren. Romans chapter 14, if you would. And notice what God tells us here in Romans chapter 14 and beginning in verse 21. Paul writes here to the Romans. And many of them were very weak and come out of pagan worship and animal sacrifices and so on. He said, it is neither good, neither to eat meat nor drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or offended or is made weak. Well, we know from other scriptures it's not wrong to eat meat if they're clean meats. It's not wrong to drink wine as long as you don't drink too much. But it's not good to do it in a way that causes others to stumble. Do you have faith? Have it yourself before God. In other words, you exercise this faith if you drink wine. Don't drink in front of some brand new brother who get all upset. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. You see, don't do what you know is bad. Because if you compromise, if you compromise, if you in your life compromise in whatever area of life, child-rearing, loving your mate, not paying your tithe and generous offerings, not praying, not studying, not doing your part, if you compromise, if you compromise, what happens? You begin to feel guilty and it ruins your faith. That's what happens. Guilt is a tremendous destroyer of faith. So happy is he, blessed is he, who does not condemn himself in what he approves, but he who doubts. See, you have, you're doing something you know you shouldn't do. You know you shouldn't have that extra drink. You know you shouldn't be trying to take that part of your money or try to hide that from God so you don't tithe upon it. You know you shouldn't be yelling at your wife again or whatever. He who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. For here's the key, whatever is not from faith is sin. This is another definition of sin. God commands you and me to walk by faith. 
And if you don't walk by faith and do the, do the things you know you should do, then you're going to hurt your faith and you're going to hurt your relationship with God. You are putting something else before the true God in a, faith, in a sense. And God knows that and your heart will condemn you. So whatever is not of faith is sin. You've got to walk by faith. And if you don't do that and do what you know is right, then you're sinning. You're turning against God. So you and I cannot afford to compromise. We know that people in our church and some of these other fellowships, they do things that are not right at all. We know that. We don't need to talk about them. We talk about ourselves. We better get close to God as a church, all of us. If you water down your attitude towards sex or lust, some of you men, you begin to see girly pictures or wrong things in movies or TV, your lust is aroused, that's sin. You can't afford to compromise with that. Too much liquor. You carelessly keep the Sabbath and break the Sabbath. You're compromising. You're compromising with tithing and you begin to rob God. You begin to compromise by seeing the wrong kind of television and films and so forth. You begin to compromise by allowing yourself to hate and to be envious of others and have these rotten, resentful attitudes toward other human beings. Don't do that. You compromise by not having and building and exercising faith and Christ's leadership. Christ is alive. He doesn't want that. You need to have faith that Christ is alive. He is the living head of His church. And if the church is still doing His work and preaching His truth, and we say, well, here's the way you keep the Sabbath, or here's the way you keep the holy days, then you'd better have confidence in that, frankly, brethren, unless you can absolutely prove it's against God's law. If it is, you come to us about it. We won't kick you out. We'll listen to you, write your paper, talk to us, whatever. But the church has been around a long time and many of us have been around for decades under Mr. Armstrong have some confidence in what Christ has been doing in his church. There are people in this church who try to outdo us and how they keep the Sabbath or they have a different attitude toward the holy days or they do this or do that because they don't have faith that Christ is the head of his church and he's guiding us and doing those things the right way. So have confidence. And that's what God tells you to do. That's what God wants you to do. Turn back to Revelation 21 now. Revelation chapter 21, brethren. Here he says near the end of the whole Bible, Revelation 21 verse 7, He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, wow, he puts those who lack faith right in this listing. The cowardly, I'm just afraid to do this and I've got to, you know, water things down because I'm afraid people might not like it or I might get in trouble or whatever. The cowardly, the unbelieving, those who refuse to trust God, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone which is the second death. Wow, he puts unbelieving right in that same category. That's the mind of God in print. He intends, He requires that you and I have faith in God and faith in Christ as the living head of the church. So we've got to build that in the right way. Now turn back to Revelation chapter 3, brethren. Revelation 3 and verse 14. Here He's describing this final age. We're living in it. 
to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, these things says the amen, the true and faithful witness, the beginner, or ought to be translated the, the, the beginner, yeah, the originator of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm. What do the lukewarm people do? They compromise. You see what I mean? This whole sermon is telling you, don't compromise. Put your full faith in God and do it God's way, whatever it is whether it's church government and not voting and not politicking and messing about, whether it's trusting in God to protect your life in the coming tribulation, whether it's trusting God to heal you, and if you let some die before age 70, you still don't give up on God because He's going to resurrect them absolutely in His time and He knows better. Whether it's leading the church overall, you trust in God, but you water things down and you become a compromiser. So then, because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's the way Christ looks at compromisers. Those who don't walk and live by real faith in God, trusting that you're supposed to do it God's way, whatever it is. Now turn back to chapter 3 again, Revelation 3 and verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, who, who has the key of David, and we've explained a lot recently, that has everything to do with right church government. David had everything to do with government. He who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens, trust that Christ will open the doors as he is through us. I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. They can't shut the door of television or the printing press until it's God's time. Mr. Armstrong was put off quite a number of individual stations, but radio was never closed. The door of television was never closed. But for you have kept a little strength and have kept my word and have not denied my name. And we're trying to do that with our whole heart. We need to do it better. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they're really Jews, true Christians and are not, I'll make them to come and worship and to know that I have loved you because you've kept my command to persevere by faith or carrying on that way overall, trying to not make the same mistakes Mr. Armstrong and all of us made. Some of us leaders were with him there. We'll try not to repeat those mistakes because we'll make plenty of mistakes of our own. <laughs> we know that. But we try to grow and follow that pattern that Christ guided his church in for 52 years under his servant. Because you've kept my command to persevere, I will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I'm going to protect you if you persevere and walk by faith and don't give up and quit no matter how hard it gets. Behold, I come quickly. And brethren, we need to realize whether it's five years or 15 years, I think it's somewhere in there, but some of you may wish it were longer. Maybe it will be. I think it's closer to 5 than to 15, but I better not say more. They say, don't set dates. Okay, I'm just saying what I think, sort of, all right? I come quickly. Hold fast that you have, that no one may take your crown. Or to hold fast. Don't give up and quit. Walk by faith. He who overcomes... I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. We're going to have powerful names 
titles, offices given us because we have been willing to walk by faith before and with the invisible God. We don't see God in Christ. We walk by faith and God honors that. So we're going to have a new name and I will write upon him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. God is speaking to us at the end of this age and God wants us to walk and live by faith. We're going to have faith because we're going through trials such as the earth has never experienced in human history. And the nearest thing was the flood way back when. But the, the, the scope of this is so much worse. Not just a few hundred thousand people, but now hundreds of millions of people are going to be wiped out. And we in this room and you brethren around the world overwhelmingly can be, will be protected if you truly walk with God and walk by faith. So now above all times, let us devote ourselves to growing, growing in faith as we approach the end of this age.